7. New word or making, improvements, in the illustration of a child's chair, which is said to have been actually used by Cromwell, can be seen an example of carved oak of this time, it was lent to the writer by its present owner, in whose family it was an heirloom since one of his ancestors married the protector's daughter, the ornament has no particular style, and it may be taken for granted that the period of the commonwealth was not marked by any progress in decorative art, the above illustration, however, proves that there were exceptions to the prevalent Puritan objection to figure ornament. In one of Mrs. S. C. Hall's papers, Pilgrimages to English Shrines, contributed in 1849 to The Art Journal, she describes the interior of the house which was built for Bridget, the protector's daughter, who married General Irriton. The handsome oak staircase had the newels surmounted by carved figures, representing different grades of men in the general's army a captain, common soldier, piper, drummer, etc. etc. while the spaces between the balustrades were filled in with devices emblematical of warfare, the ceiling being decorated in the fashion of the period. At the time Mrs. Hall wrote, the house bore Cromwell's name and the date 1630. We may date from the Commonwealth the more general use of chairs, people sat as they chose, and no longer regarded the chair as the Lord's place. A style of chair, which we still recognize as Cromwellian, was also largely imported from Holland about this time plain square backs and seats covered with brown leather, studded with brass nails, the legs, which are now generally turned with a spiral twist, were in Cromwell's time plain and simple, the residence of Charles I.I. abroad, had accustomed him and his friends to the much more luxurious furniture of France and Holland, with the restoration came a foreign queen, a foreign court, French manners, and French literature, cabinets, chairs, tables, and couches, were imported into England from the Netherlands, France, Spain, and Portugal, and our craftsmen profited by new ideas and new patterns, and what was of equal consequence, an increased demand for decorative articles of furniture, the king of Portugal had ceded Bombay, one of the Portuguese Indian stations, to the new queen, and there is a chair of this Indo-Portuguese work, carved in ebony, now in the museum at Oxford which was given by Charles I.I., either to Elias Eshmole or to Evelyn, the illustration on the next page shows all the details of the carving, another woodcut, on a smaller scale, represents a similar chair grouped with a settee of a like design, together with a small folding chair which Mr. G.T. Robinson, in his article on, seats, has described as Italian, but which we take the liberty of pronouncing Flemish, judging by one now in the South Kensington Museum. In connection with this Indo-Portuguese furniture, it would seem that spiral turning became known and fashionable in England during the reign of Charles I.I., and in some chairs of English make, which have come under the writer's notice, the legs have been carved to imitate the effect of spiral turning an amount of superfluous labor which would scarcely have been incurred, but for the fact that the country house carpenter of this time had an imported model, which he copied without knowing how to produce by the lathe the effect which had just come into fashion. There are, too, in some illustrations in Shaw's ancient furniture, some lamp holders, in which this spiral turning is overdone, as is generally the case when any particular kind of ornament comes into vogue. Illustration, settee and chair, in carved ebony, part of Indo-Portuguese suite at Penshurst Place, with Flemish folding chair, period, Charles I.I. Illustration, Carved ebony chair of Indo-Portuguese work, given by Charles I.I., to Elias Eshmole, Esquire, in the museum at Oxford, 
probably the illustrated suite of furniture at Penshurst Place, which comprises 13 pieces, was imported about this time, two of the smaller chairs appear to have their original cushions, the others have been lately recovered by Lord Dillisley and Dudley, the spindles of the backs of two of the chairs are of ivory, the carving, which is in solid ebony, is much finer on some than on others. We gather a good deal of information about the furniture of this period from the famous diary of Evelyn. He thus describes Hampton Court Palace, as it appeared to him at the time of its preparation for the reception of Catherine of Braganza, the bride of Charles I.I., who spent the royal honeymoon in this historic building, which had in its time sheltered for their brief spans of favor the six wives of Henry V.I.I., and the sickly boyhood of Edward V.I. It is as noble and uniform a pile as Gothic architecture can make it. There is incomparable furniture in it, especially hangings designed by Raphael, very rich with gold. Of the tapestries I believe the world can show nothing nobler of the kind than the stories of Abraham and Tobit. The Queen's bed was an embroidery of silver on crimson velvet, and cost L8.000, being a present made by the States of Holland when His Majesty returned. The great-looking glass and toilet of beaten massive gold were given by the Queen Mother. The Queen brought over with her from Portugal such Indian cabinets as had never before been seen here. Evelyn wrote of course before Wren made his Renaissance additions to the palace. After the great fire which occurred in 1666, and destroyed some 13.000 houses and no less than 80 churches, Sir Christopher Wren was given an opportunity, unprecedented in history of displaying his power of design and reconstruction. Writing of this great architect, Macaulay says, The austere beauty of the Athenian portico, the gloomy sublimity of the Gothic arcade, he was, like most of his contemporaries, incapable of emulating, and perhaps incapable of appreciating, but no man born on our side of the Alps has imitated with so much success the magnificence of the palace churches of Italy, even the superb Louis XIV has left to posterity no work which can bear a comparison with Street Paul's, illustration, says, Akitabai, Quata Produxit Alumnos quote Gramio Nutrit Grandit, quote, Isis Habit, from the original by Sir Peter Lilly, presented to Dr. Busby by King Charles, says Busbyana, from a print in the possession of J.C.T.H. Wyanany, Esquire period, Charles I.I., Wren's great masterpiece was commenced in 1675, and completed in 1710, and its building therefore covers a period of 35 years, carrying us through the reigns of James I.I., William I.I., and Mary, and well on to the end of ends, the admirable work which he did during this time, and which has effected so much for the adornment of our metropolis, had a marked influence on the ornamental woodwork of the second half of the 17th century, in the additions which he made to Hampton Court Palace, in Church in the hospitals of Greenwich and of Chelsea, there is a sumptuousness of ornament in stone and marble, which shew the influence exercised on his mind by the desire to rival the grandeur of Louis XIV. The fountain court at Hampton being in direct imitation of the Palace of Versailles, the carved woodwork of the choir of Street Pauls, with fluted columns supporting a carved frieze, the richly carved panels, and the beautiful figure work on both organ lofts afford evidence that the oak enrichments followed the marble and stone ornament, the swags of fruit and flowers, the cherubs' heads with folded wings, and other details in Wren's work, closely resemble the designs executed by Gibbons, whose carving is referred to later on. It may be mentioned here that amongst the few churches in the city which escaped the great fire, 
and contain woodwork of particular note, our street Helens, Bishopgate, and the Charter House Chapel, which contain the original pulpits of about the 16th century, the famous Dr. Busby, who for 55 years was headmaster of Westminster School, was a great favorite of King Charles, and a picture painted by Sir Peter Lilly, is said to have been presented to the doctor by his majesty, it is called, said Busbyana, prints from this old picture are scarce, and the writer is indebted to Mr. John C. Finn for the loan of his copy, from which the illustration is taken, the portrait in the center, of the pedagogue aspiring to the mitre, is that of Drive South, who succeeded Busby, and whose monument in Westminster Abbey is next to his, the illustration is interesting, as although it may not have been actually taken from a chair itself, it shows a design in the mind of a contemporary artist, of the halls of the city guilds, there is none more quaint, and in greater contrast to the bustle of the neighborhood, than the hall of the Brewers Company, in Adle Street, City, this was partially destroyed, like most of the older halls, by the Great Fire, but was one of the first to be restored and refurnished, in the kitchen are still to be seen the remains of an old trestle and other relics of an earlier period, but the hall or dining room, and the court room, are complete, with very slight additions, since the date of their interior equipment in 1670-1673, the courtroom has a richly carved chimney piece in oak, nearly black with age, the design of which is a shield with a winged head, palms, and swags of fruit and flowers, while on the shield itself is an inscription, stating that this room was wainscoted by Alderman Knight, Master of the Company and Lord Mayor of the City of London, in the year 1670, the room itself is exceedingly quaint, with its high wainscoting and windows on the opposite side to the fireplace, reminding one of the portholes of a ship's cabin, while the chief window looks out onto the old-fashioned garden, giving the beholder altogether a pleasing illusion, carrying him back to the days of Charles I.I. The chief room or hall is still more handsomely decorated with carved oak of this time. The actual date, 1673, is over the doorway on a tablet which bears the names, in the letters of the period, of the master, James Reading, Esquire, and the Wardens, Mr. Robert Lawrence, Mr. Samuel Barber, and, Mr. Henry Sell, the names of other masters and wardens are also written over the carved discussions of their different arms, and the whole room is one of the best specimens in existence of the oak carving of this date, at the western end is the master's chair, of which by the courtesy of Mr. Higgins, clerk to the company, we are able to give an illustration on page 115 the shield-shaped back, the carved drapery, and the coat of arms with the company's motto, are all characteristic features, as are also the Corinthian columns and arched pediments, in the oak decoration of the room, the broken swan-necked pediment, which surmounts the cornice of the room over the chair, is probably a more recent addition, this ornament having come in about 30 years later, there are also the old dining tables and benches, these are as plain and simple as possible. In the courtroom, is a table, which was formerly in the company's barge, with some good inlaid work in the arcading which connects the two end standards, and some old carved lion's feet, the top and other parts have been renewed. There is also an old oak fire screen of about the end of the 17th century, another city hall, the interior woodwork of which dates from just after the great fire is that of the stationer's company, in Ave Maria Lane, close to Ludgate Hill, Mr. Charles Robert Rivington, the present clerk to the company, has written a pamphlet, full of very interesting records of this ancient and worshipful corporation, 
from which the following paragraph is a quotation, the first meeting of the court after the fire was held at Cook's Hall, and the subsequent courts, until the hall was rebuilt, at the Lamay Hospital Hall, i.e. Street Bartholomew's Hospital. In 1670 a committee was appointed to rebuild the hall, and in 1674 the court agreed with Stephen College the famous Protestant joiner, who was afterwards hanged at Oxford in 1681 to wainscot the hall with well-seasoned and well-matched wainscot, according to a model delivered in for the sum of L300. His work is now to be seen in excellent condition. Mr. Reving read his paper to the London and Middlesex Archaeological Society in 1881 and the writer can with pleasure confirm the statement as to the condition, in 1892, of this fine specimen of 17th century work, less ornate and elaborate than the Brewer's Hall. The panels are only slightly relieved with carved moldings, but the end of the room, or main entrance, opposite the place of the old day is long since removed, is somewhat similar to the Brewer's, and presents a fine architectural effect, which will be observed in the illustration on page 117. Illustration, carved oak livery cupboard, in the hall of the Statue Owners Company, made in 1674, the curved pediment added later, probably in 1788, there is above, an illustration of one of the two livery cupboards, which formerly stood on the dais, and these are good examples of the cupboards for display of plate of this period, the lower part was formerly the receptacle of unused vines, distributed to the poor after the feast. In their original state these livery cupboards finished with a straight cornice, the broken pediments with the eagle the company's crest having most probably been added when the hall was, to quote an inscription on a shield, repaired and beautified in the mayoralty of the Right Honorable William Gill, in the year 1788, when Mr. Thomas Hook was master, and Mr. Field and Mr. Rivington the present clerk's grandfather wardens, illustration, armchairs, chair upholstered in Spinalfield's silk. Hampton Court Palace, carved and upholstered chair, Hardwick Hall, chair upholstered in Spinalfield silk, Noli, Savinoks, period, William III, to Queen Anne, there is still preserved in a lumber room one of the old benches of 17th century work now replaced in the hall by modern folding chairs, this is a oak, with turned skittle-shaped legs slanting outwards, and connected and strengthened by plain stretchers, the old tables are still in their places, Illustration, carved oak screen, in the hall of the stationer's company, erected in 1674, the royal coat of arms has been since added. Another example of 17th century oak paneling is the handsome chapel of the Mercer's Hall the only city company possessing their own chapel but only the lining of the walls and the rear dose are of the original work, the remainder having been added some 10 or 12 years ago, when some of the original carving was made use of in the new work. Indeed. In this magnificent hall, about the most spacious of the old city corporation palaces, there is a great deal of new work mixed with old new chimney pieces and old overmantel some of Grimling Gibbons carved enrichments, so painted and varnished as to have lost much of their character, these have been applied to the oak panels in the large dining hall, the woodwork lining of living rooms had been undergoing changes since the commencement of the period of which we are now writing. In 1638 a man named Christopher had taken out a patent for enameling and gilding leather, which was used as a wall decoration over the oak paneling. This decorated leather hitherto had been imported from Holland and Spain, when this was not used, and tapestry, which was very expensive, was not obtainable. The plaster was roughly ornamented, somewhat later than this, 
pictures were let into the wainscot to form part of the decoration, for in 1669 Evelyn, when writing of the house of the Earl of Norwich, in Epping Forest, says, a good many pictures put into the wainscot which Mr. Baker, his lordship's predecessor, brought from Spain, indeed, subsequently the wainscot became simply the frame for pictures, and we have the same writer deploring the disuse of timber and expressing his opinion that a sumptuary law ought to be passed to restore the ancient use of timber, although no law was enacted on the subject, yet, some twenty years later, the word Erligiga fashion brought about the revival of the custom of lining rooms with oak paneling. It is said that about 1670 Evelyn found Grimling Gibbons in a small thatched house on the outskirts of Deptford, and introduced him to the king, who gave him an appointment on the board of works, and patronized him with extensive orders. The character of his carving is well known, generally using lime tree as the vehicle of his designs, the lifelike birds and flowers, the groups of fruit, and heads of cherubs, are easily recognized. One of the rooms in Windsor Castle is decorated with the work of his chisel, which can also be seen in Street Paul's Cathedral, Hampton Court Palace, Chatsworth, Burley, and perhaps his best, Epitworth House, in Sussex. He also sculptured in stone the base of King Charles' statue at Windsor, the font of St. James, Piccadilly round the base of which are figures of Adam and Eve, are his work, as is also the lime tree border of festoon work over the communion table. Gibbons was an Englishman, but appears to have spent his boyhood in Holland, where he was christened, Grimling. He died in 1721. His pupils were Samuel Watson, a Derbyshire man, who did much of the carved work at Chatsworth, Drivot of Brussels and Lorians of Mecklen, Gibbons and his pupils founded a school of carving in England which has been continued by tradition to the present day. A somewhat important immigration of French workmen occurred about this time owing to the persecutions of Protestants in France, which followed, the revocation of the Edict of Mance in 1685, by Louis XIV, and these refugees bringing with them their skill, their patterns and ideas, influenced the carving of our frames and the designs of some of our furniture. This influence is to be traced in some of the contents of Hampton Court Palace, particularly in the carved and gilt center tables and the tour shares of French design but of English workmanship. It is said that no less than 50.000 families left France, some thousands of whom belonged to the industrial classes, and settled in England and Germany, where their descendants still remain. They introduced the manufacture of crystal chandeliers, and founded our Spanelfield silk industry and other trades, till then little practiced in England. The beautiful silver furniture at Noli belongs to this time, having been made for one of the earls of Dorset, in the reign of James I.I. The illustration is from a photograph taken by Mr. Cork, of Savinoaks. Electrotypes of the originals are in the South Kensington Museum, from two other suites at Noli, consisting of a looking glass a table, and a pair of tour shares, in the one case of plain walnut wood, and in the other of ebony with silver mountings, it would appear that a toilet suite of furniture of the time of James I.I., generally consisted of articles of a similar character, more or less costly, according to circumstances, the silver table bears the English hallmark of the reign, as we approach the end of the 17th century and examine specimens of English furniture about 1680 to 1700. We find a marked Flemish influence. The stadtholder, King William I.I., with his Dutch friends, imported many of their household goods, 
and our English craftsmen seem to have copied these very closely. The chairs and settees in the South Kensington Museum, and at Hampton Court Palace, have the shaped back with a wide inlaid or carved upright bar, the cabriole leg and the carved shell ornament on the knee of the leg, and on the top of the back, which are still to be seen in many of the old Dutch houses. There are a few examples of furniture of this date, which it is almost impossible to distinguish from Flemish, but in some others there is a characteristic decoration in marquetry, which may be described as a seaweed scroll in holly or boxwood, inlaid on a pale walnut ground, a good example of which is to be seen in the upright grandfather's clock in the South Kensington Museum, the effect being a pleasing harmony of color. In the same collection there is also a walnutwood center table dating from about 1700, which has twisted legs and a stretcher, the top being inlaid with intersecting circles relieved by the inlay of some stars in ivory, as we have observed with regard to French furniture of this time, mirrors came more generally into use, and the frames were both carved and inlaid, there are several of these at Hampton Court Palace, all with beveled edged plate glass, some have frames entirely of glass, the short lengths which make the frame, having in some cases the joints covered by rosettes of blue glass, and in others a narrow molding of gilt work on each side of the frame. In one room the Queen's Gallery the frames are painted in colors and relieved by a little gilding. The taste for importing old Dutch furniture, also lacquer cabinets from Japan, not only gave relief to the appearance of a well-furnished apartment of this time, but also brought new ideas to our designers and workmen, our collectors, too were at this time appreciating the oriental china, both blue and white, and colored, which had a good market in Holland, so that with the excellent silversmith's work then obtainable, it was possible in the time of William and Mary to arrange a room with more artistic effect than at an earlier period, when the tapestry and paneling of the walls, a table, the livery cupboard previously described, and some three or four chairs, had formed almost the whole furniture of reception rooms. The first mention of corner cupboards appears to have been made in an advertisement of a Dutch joiner in the Postman of March 8, 1711. These cupboards, with their carved pediments being part of the modern fittings of a room in the time of Queen Anne, the oppresses common to this and earlier times are formed of an upper and lower part, the former sometimes being three sides of an octagon with the top supported by columns, while the lower half is straight, and the whole is carved with incised ornament. These useful articles of furniture, in the absence of wardrobes, are described in inventories of the time 1680-1720 as press cupboards, great cupboards, wainscot, and joint cupboards. The first mention of a bureau, as our modern word bureau was then spelt, is said by Dr. Lyon, in his American book, The Colonial Furniture of New England, to have occurred in an advertisement in the Daily Post of January 4, 1727. The same author quotes Bailey's Dictionarium Britannicum, published in London, 1736, as defining the word bureau as a cabinet or chest of drawers, or screw or for depositing papers or accounts. In the latter half of the 18th century those convenient pieces of furniture came into more general use, and illustrations of them as designed and made by Chippendale and his contemporaries will be found in the chapter dealing with that period. Dr. Lyon also quotes from an American newspaper, the Boston Newsletter of April 16, 1716, an advertisement which was evidently published when the tall clocks, which we now call grandfather's clocks, were a novelty, and as such were being introduced to the American public, 
We have already referred to one of these which is in the South Kensington Museum, date 1700, and no doubt the manufacture of similar ones became more general during the first years of the 18th century. The advertisement alluded to runs, lately come from London, a parcel of very fine clocks they go a week and repeat the hour when pulled, a string caused the same action as the pressing of the handle of a repeating watch, in Japan cases or walnut. The style of decoration in furniture and woodwork which we recognize as Queen Anne, apart from the marquetry just described, appears, so far as the writer's investigations have gone, to be due to the designs of some eminent architects of the time. Sir James Vanbrugh was building Blenheim Palace for the Queen's victorious general, and also Castle Howard. Nicholas Hawksmower had erected Street George's, Bloomsbury, and James Gibbs, a Scotch architect and antiquary. St. Martin's in the Fields, and the Royal Library at Oxford, a ponderous style characterizes the woodwork interior of these buildings. We give an illustration of three designs for chimney pieces and overmantels by James Gibbs, the center one of which illustrates the curved or swan-necked pediment, which became a favorite ornament about this time, until supplanted by the heavier triangular pediment which came in with the George. The contents of Hampton Court Palace afford evidence of the transition which the design of woodwork and furniture has undergone from the time of William III, until that of George II. There is the Dutch chair with cabriole leg, the plain walnut card table also of Dutch design, which probably came over with the stadtholder, then, there are the heavy draperies, and chairs almost completely covered by Spinelfield silk velvet, to be seen in the bedroom furniture of Queen Anne, later. As the heavy Georgian style predominated, there is the stiff and gainly gilt furniture, console tables with legs ornamented with the Greek key pattern badly applied, and finally, as the French school of design influenced our carvers, an improvement may be noticed in the tables and tour chairs, which but for being a trifle clumsy, might pass for the work of French craftsmen of the same time, the state chairs, the bedstead, and some stools, which are said to have belonged to Queen Caroline are further examples of the adoption of French fashion. Nearly all writers on the subject of furniture and woodwork are agreed in considering that the earlier part of the period discussed in this chapter, that island the 17th century, is the best in the traditions of English work. As we have seen in noticing some of the earlier Jacobean examples already illustrated and described, it was a period marked by increased refinement of design through the abandonment of the more grotesque and often coarse work of Elizabethan carving, and by soundness of construction and thorough workmanship. Oak furniture made in England during the 17th century, is still a credit to the painstaking craftsmen of those days, and even upholstered furniture, like the couches and chairs at Noli, after more than 250 years service, are fit for use. In the ninth and last chapter, which will deal with furniture of the present day. The methods of production which are now in practice will be noticed, and some comparison will be made which must be to the credit of the Jacobean period. In the foregoing chapters an attempt has been made to preserve, as far as possible, a certain continuity in the history of the subject matter of this work from the earliest times until after the Renaissance had been generally adopted in Europe. In this endeavor a greater amount of attention has been bestowed upon the furniture of a comparatively short period of English history than upon that of other countries, but it is hoped that this fault will be forgiven by English readers. It has now become necessary to interrupt this plan, and before returning to the consideration of European design and work, 
to devote a short chapter to those branches of the industrial arts connected with furniture which flourished in China and Japan, in India, Persia, and Arabia, at a time anterior and subsequent to the Renaissance period in Europe. Chapter V The Furniture of Eastern Countries Chinese Furniture Probable source of artistic taste Sir William Chambers quoted Racinet's Lee Costume Historic Dutch Influence The South Kensington and the Duke of Edinburgh Collections Processes of Making Lacquer Screens in the Kensington Museum. Japanese Furniture Early History Sir Rutherford Alcock and Lord Elgin The Collection of the Shogun Famous Collections Action of the Present Government of Japan Special Characteristics Indian Furniture, Early European Influence Furniture of the Moguls Racinet's Work Bombay Furniture Ivory Chairs and Table Specimens in the India Museum, Persian Woodwork, Collection of Objets d'Art formed by General Murdoch Smith, Ari Industrial Arts of the Persians Arab Influence South Kensington Specimens, SARACNIC Woodwork, Oriental Customs Specimens in the South Kensington Museum of Arab Work MD Single Quote of Yun Single Quote S Work. Chinese and Japanese Furniture We have been unable to discover when the Chinese first began to use state or domestic furniture, whether, like the ancient Assyrians and Egyptians, there was an early civilization which included the arts of joining, carving, and upholstering. We do not know, most probably there was, and from the plaster casts which one sees in our Indian museum, of the ornamental stone gateways of Sanchitope, Bhopal in central India, it would appear that in the early part of our Christian era, the carvings in wood of their neighbors and company religionists, the Hindus, represented figures of men and animals in the woodwork of sacred buildings or palaces, and the marvelous dexterity in manipulating wood, ivory and stone which we recognize in the Chinese of today, is inherited from their ancestors. Sir William Chambers traveled in China in the early part of the last century. It was he who introduced the Chinese style into furniture and decoration, which was adopted by Chippendale and other makers, as will be noticed in the chapter dealing with that period of English furniture. He gives us the following description of the furniture he found in the flowery land. The movables of the saloon consist of chairs, stools, and tables, made sometimes of rosewood, ebony, or lacquered work, and sometimes of bamboo only, which is cheap, and Nevertheless, very neat. When the movables are of wood, the seats of the stools are often of marble or porcelain, which, though hard to sit on, are far from unpleasant in a climate where the summer heats are so excessive. In the corners of the rooms are stands four or live feet high, on which they set plates of citrons, and other fragrant fruits, or branches of coral in vases of porcelain, and glass globes containing goldfish, together with a certain weed somewhat resembling fennel. On such tables as are intended for ornament only they also place little landscapes, composed of rocks, shrubs, and a kind of lily that grows among pebbles covered with water. Sometimes also, they have artificial landscapes made of ivory, crystal, amber, pearls, and various stones. I have seen some of these that cost over 300 guineas, but they are at best mere baubles, and miserable imitations of nature. Besides these landscapes they adorn their tables with several vases of porcelain, and little vases of copper, which are held in great esteem. These are generally of simple and pleasing forms. The Chinese say they were made 2,000 years ago, by some of their celebrated artists, and such as are we.